Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. appreciate that. Thank you so much, sir. If you'll stand with me, we're going to go to the Word of God as we speak about grief and loss tonight. And we're going to go to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, a familiar passage to many. We're going to start with verse 1. It says, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. God, we thank you for your sweet spirit that's in this house tonight. God, I pray, Lord, as we, Lord, speak of these things that you would move, Lord, among your people. I pray, God, you would bring a revelation, you would bring healing, you would bring encouragement. Lord, that you would allow some people, God, who may have unresolved grief in their life, God, be able to find healing, Lord, be able to find deliverance, God. We thank you and we praise you and we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. And everyone say, amen. You can be seated. I'm going to read a couple more passages of scripture before I get started. We're going to go to Matthew 5, verse 4. It says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, what I want us to take notice of in this verse is not so much that people who mourn will be comforted, although that is what is stated here, but the fact that people are going to mourn. That mourning is obviously going to happen in order for someone to be comforted. In Revelation 21 and verse 4, the Bible says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. So this is speaking of the time when we're in heaven, and there's no more tears, and no more crying, and no more pain, and no more death, and no more sorrow. Again, what that tells us, though, is while we're down here on earth, We're going to have tears, and we're going to have death, and we're going to have crying, and we're going to have sorrow. Grief and loss, it comes to us all. No one is exempt from it. It crosses all barriers, and it's not a respecter of persons. It doesn't matter your age, young or old, your income level, your nationality, or even your skin color. Everyone sitting in this room has suffered loss in one form or another. Now, tonight, you might assume, well, the only loss she's really going to be talking about when we talk about grief is talking about death. I mean, it has to be, right? The death of a loved one or relative. But that would be an incorrect assumption. It certainly includes death, but it's not limited to only that type of loss. Loss is described as a change or an end to a familiar pattern of behavior. With that definition in mind, loss can include the death of a loved one. It can include the death of a pet. And maybe a kid loses a beloved dog. The loss of a job. There's many people that have experienced grief over the loss of a job. Maybe move into a new home or a new location, and you left behind previous friends, people in your neighborhood. Maybe your children grew up and went to college and got married. You have the empty nest. You're experiencing a loss. 
Maybe you suffered a miscarriage. Maybe even during retirement, you worked a job and suddenly you're no longer working. And even though you chose retirement, maybe you find yourself at a loss. In response to this loss are all different types of emotions and feelings. And grief, at its definition, simply means conflicting feelings caused by a loss. So conflicting feelings. Grief is complex. It's not simple black or white. Conflicting feelings occur. And you might say, well, what do you mean, Sister McGee? Well, if I could give you this example. When my grandpa Holland died, he served God faithfully. He was full of the Holy Ghost. He was ready to go. I knew that he went to heaven. So in my grief, I experienced rejoicing that he was in a better place, that he wasn't suffering anymore. But I also, at the same time, experienced grief in the sense of sadness that I can't visit with him anymore. I can't call him up. I can't talk to him. I miss him. So it's conflicting feelings. I've had feelings of joy alongside feelings of sadness. Maybe you have kids that grew up and went to college. And so that parent might feel a sense of pride. Hey, look at what my kid's accomplishing. Look what they're achieving. I'm so, I'm feeling excitement as I watch them chase their dreams. But at the same time, I'm feeling sad because of the loss of walking down the hall and seeing the room empty. Or now I'm just fixing dinner for me and my husband and I'm not able to cook for them and their seat is empty at the dinner table. Conflicting feelings because of loss. This time of year, it can be really difficult, especially for people who have suffered loss. Seems like the holidays, the cold weather, the dreariness of the day in, the day out, all the leaves are off the trees. There's a lot of times you'll have days without end that the sun doesn't shine. And so people slip into somewhat of a depression, and they start to think about loved ones that have gone or losses they've experienced. And it seems to impact them more at this time of year. Maybe a death of a loved one that's not here to share Christmas anymore. Maybe it's a newly divorced man or woman, and they don't know how they're going to get through the holidays because all their family traditions are gone, and new ones must be made. They're experiencing a new normal. It's grief. It's loss. So tonight I'm going to talk to you about several things. A lot of what I'm going to talk to you about tonight, and excuse the cover, it's well-worn. I bought it used, but um, this is one of the best books I've ever read in my entire life. It's called When Children Grieve. And its subtitle is for adults to help children deal with death, divorce, pet loss, moving, and other losses. But it's a whole lot more than that. And I'm going to draw a lot of it out of this book. It was written by John James, Russell Friedman, and also Dr. Leslie Matthews. They all have had their own practices, therapists. They, it's amazing. You can get this book for like five bucks on eBay, and it is so good. So if anything I say here tonight resonates with you and you want to read more details, that is the book to get because it is excellent. Now, sadly, we live in a time, a society, that doesn't seem to allot that same sense of empathy and understanding to grief and loss as they might give to someone who broke their leg. You might say, what? But think about it. Let's say someone broke their leg. They'll probably be off work for six to eight weeks so that the bone can heal. They can't work. Um, there may be things in place that they can get. If they got hurt on the job, there may be workman's comp they can qualify for. Or if not, they might be able to apply for short-term disability. They might be able to apply for the Family Medical Leave Act if they have sickness. It helps these people through their time of recovery and healing. But now flip gears and say someone loses a parent to death. At the most, they'll probably get three days of bereavement so they can attend the funeral. And then they're expected to be back at work ready to be productive, but hearts take a whole lot longer to heal than broken bones. 
but in our society, it's not really given the same latitude. You think about the number of people that go through divorce, which is very common in our society. There's no time off work to go through a divorce. So, so many times, all these different types of losses, people don't get the adequate time and space they need to heal and go through the recovery and the grief process. So what do they do? They stuff it. They bury their feelings. They push it down. They go to work many times because they have to provide for themselves, especially if kids are involved. Consider the response that these two different people might get. First one, they broke their leg. Oh, I'm so sorry. Did you break your leg? Yeah, I did. How did it happen? Well, how long are you going to be on the crutches? What type of therapy do you have to do? You know, how in the world did that happen? What did you do? Then you have that another person walk in, and their parent has died. Pretty much what you're going to hear is the person's going to say, I'm so sorry for your loss. And that's probably the end of it. They're probably, and I understand that people are being respectful. It's understandable. Some people aren't ready to talk about their loss, and you don't know where they're at in their grief, okay? And different people deal with it differently. So it's a form of respect. You know, I'm here if you need me. Um, but at the same time, my point is, that as, a, as a whole, society deals with grief and loss, heart pain differently than what might be considered just a physical ailment. So what I really want to focus on tonight is taking some time to address common myths that permeate our society surrounding grief and loss. And I promise you, you're going to recognize them. And like I said, I'm taking them from the book, When Children Grieve. There's a chapter actually devoted to each myth in this book. The myths are learned and adopted as we grew up and cause people to hold in their grief and not really express it in a healthy way. And this really actually puts us in direct conflict with our own nature, and it doesn't help the problem, but makes it worse. So as we look at the ideas that do not work, then we're gonna be better equipped to replace them with ideas that do. So there's six myths we're gonna discuss, and I realize I'm doing a pastor thing by telling you how many there are, so you know where we're at in the journey as we go along. But I wanna give you a basis, so if you wanted to jot them down, you can. But the six myths we're gonna discuss are these. Number one, don't feel bad. Number two, replace the loss. And I'll, keep, I'll go through these several times. Number three, grieve alone. Number four, be strong. Number five, keep busy. And number six, time heals all wounds. Now, we're going to examine many of these lenses through the eyes of children and even stories that involve kids. But I'm hoping that you will understand that through this simple approach, it'll help us to see how we were shaped into adults and why we deal with grief the way we do. So let's start with myth number one. Don't feel bad. Imagine you just hit your finger with a hammer. You're jumping up and down and you're howling with pain. Ah! Would it be helpful to someone to walk up to you and say, oh, don't feel bad. It was an accident. You know you didn't hit yourself on purpose. Does that phrase take away the pain you're feeling? Does it make the swelling go down? Does it stop the bleeding? Of course not, right? That seems silly. But the truth is we have used this phrase or this comment in so many different scenarios. We preach the importance of honesty, especially to our kids, but then we try to suppress and don't really allow negative emotions to surface. And if you give me time, I'm going to prove my point. It is absolutely appropriate to have sad, painful, and negative emotional reactions to sad, painful, or negative events. You cannot change how you feel. You can, we can control what we do. We can control what we say. It's biblical. God even said, be angry and sin not. It wasn't that we weren't going to be angry. 
He just didn't want to take us our anger and sin. But what we feel is what we feel. Okay? Kid comes home. He's been bullied on the playground that day. Just in tears, just telling mom all about it and how they made fun of me and they're all upset and they're finally just pouring it all out. And mom says, don't feel bad, honey. It's okay. You're home now. Look, I made chocolate chip cookies. This is going to cheer you up. And the tears may dry up, true. But the truth is the child just feels different, not necessarily better. Because those cookies are going to provide a temporary diversion, a sugar spike, no doubt. But it doesn't help one iota with the grief she felt from being bullied. Some people end up with a lifetime struggle of turning to food for comfort from things just like this as a child. Where they're not dealing successfully with feelings of grief. The next time she comes home and it's happened, she tells again, maybe just mentions it, but she may hide her true feelings and not shed a tear. And the, what the parent says, oh honey, aren't you so brave? Aren't you just being so strong? So then we grow up believing that maybe we should cover up our grief and act fine because that's rewarded, that's complimented. Don't feel bad. Think about these different scenarios. Someone's pet has died. Oh, don't feel bad. We're, we'll get you a new one. Don't feel bad. It was just a cat, fish, hamster, whatever. Maybe in death. Don't feel bad. They're in a better place. Don't feel bad. Their suffering is over now. Maybe in a divorce or even a breakup of a relationship. Don't feel bad. There's plenty of fish in the sea. Or don't feel bad. They weren't right for you. Or don't feel bad. You're better off without them. Right? Are these resonating? We've heard them. They've been told to us. Or perhaps we've even said them. What about children of divorce? Don't feel bad. This is not your fault. Don't feel bad. Mommy and Daddy still love you. Don't feel bad. You're going to get two birthday parties and two Christmases now. Right? What about a performance, whether at a job or in school or even in sports? Don't feel bad. You'll do better next time. Don't feel bad. You did your best. Don't feel bad. How many times now, if we start replaying it in our mind, have we said that? And this constant barrage enforces the idea that it's wrong to express sad or negative emotions. Don't, don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. Consider the reverse. Let's say that your kid comes home and they got an A-plus on their test and they're so proud. Would you look at them and say, don't feel good. You probably won't do that good next time. Don't feel good. You probably, next time you play, you probably won't score 15 points. Eh, don't feel too good about it. Your review next time ain't going to be as good as this one. At the wedding, oh, don't feel too good about it. You know, the divorce rate's 50%. <laughs> I mean, you know, would we say that? We would never say that. Positive emotions are celebrated in our society, but many times negative ones are rejected. Because we don't want our kids to be sad. We don't want other people to be sad. We want to cheer them up. We want to fix the problem. We want them to feel better, right? Because the negative emotions make us uncomfortable. But feeling bad has a purpose. Why shouldn't someone feel bad if they failed a test? Why shouldn't someone feel bad if they just went through a divorce, lost a pet, got a cancer diagnosis? It's a natural feeling. Jesus experienced it. Scripture says when Lazarus died that Jesus wept at his tomb. 
even knowing as God, he was going to raise him up in five minutes. He took time to stop and cry that his friend was dead. Five minutes later, he raised him up and made him alive again. But he took the time to grieve the loss of a friend, not just for himself, but as an example to those around them, even for his sisters. We see Jesus experiencing anger when his temple was being misused. He went in with a whip and angry words to drive out the people who were collecting money and charging the people. So we have to understand that feeling bad is not bad. These emotions serve a purpose, and they help us to process when losses happen in our life. So I did ask permission from a few different people to share some personal stories. One, this involves Mariah. Um, after I went through this class and read this book, Mariah in fifth grade had tons of homework, which she's back. Seems like they say the odd years, fifth grade, seventh grade. Not, well, she's in seventh, so it's back. But in fifth grade, she had a lot of homework. I mean, she was doing hours literally a night. And she would get upset after she'd been doing it for a couple hours, and she was just over it. And what would mom do? Don't feel bad. You're almost done. Don't feel bad. Look how much you've already got accomplished. Just finish up these last two pages. Oh, and just, it didn't help. Just more tears and more frustration. Well, after going through all this and gaining this understanding, it occurred one night. She had a lot of homework. She still had another subject to do. And she was just stressed. She was upset. She went to her room. She was crying. She had a lot of homework. And so this time, I just walked back and I sat down. I said, you know what, Mariah? I said, anybody that had been dealing with all the homework you've been dealing with would feel that way too. I said, I understand. If you feel bad, I, I get it. I said, you know, I remember if I look back now when I was in certain grades, I got stressed over a lot of homework too. So I'm here for you. I'm on your team. I'm here to help you. And it's okay if you need to take some time. Ten minutes, buddy. She was good. Back in there, finished it up, and was done. No more tears. She just needed to be heard. She needed her feelings to be understood and validated. Whenever the, I kept saying, oh, look how much you've done and all that, and we'll discuss that approach a little bit more later, she wasn't getting validation. She wasn't getting understanding. She needed that freedom to express the painful emotion and know that it was understood. So myth number two, replace the loss. So let's talk about John. John was a boy who had a pet that he had been in part of his family since he was born. I mean, when he came home from the hospital, that pet was right there laying next to him. And as a teenager, John's the one that found his pet had passed away. And he's devastated. He's the one that finds him. Mom's totally caught off guard. She just starts bumbling around and tries to explain how seasons change and leaves fall from trees and death happens. And he's still crying. And finally she says, your dad can help you when he gets home. Dad says, son, it's all right. Don't feel bad. This weekend we're going to go get a new dog. Do you think it helped him feel any better? Well, you're right. He wasn't even able to form a healthy attachment with the new dog that they did go and get while still trying to process all the grief and the feelings of his loss from the dog he'd had from the time he was a baby. Two misconceptions. Don't feel bad and replace the loss. So we're going to discuss this in the parameters of maybe a pet that died, but I want you to consider as we're talking about the concepts how it would be applied maybe with a teenager who broke up with his or her girlfriend or someone newly divorced, you know, replace the loss. 
there's plenty of fish in the sea. Get back out there. You can find someone better. You know, replace it. The idea of replacing the loss is presented when most people are just in a crucial, highly emotional state. They've just suffered a devastating loss. And it really sets up a tremendous conflict. First, it dismisses the importance of the relationship between the child and the dog. Just brushing it off so casually. It's all right. We'll just get a new one. As if it didn't matter. Second, it presents the idea that valuable relationships are disposable. And third, it creates an illusion that the next relationship will be just as good or if not better than the first. Just replace it. Relationships, though, with people, with animals, even prized possessions are unique. You might say possessions. Well, yeah, think about if you had a really rare baseball card that your dad passed on to you and then he passed away and that was really important to you and maybe it got stolen or burned up in a fire. Oh, they're crying over a possession? But that was a unique rare card that they got from their dad. There was sentimental value attached to that. They're grieving a loss. They're thinking about the times they got that card out and him and dad looked at it. You understand there's more to it than it just being a thing. No two people can have identical relationships with anyone or anything. So I want to pause right here and say this. You can't compare loss. You can't compare loss and say, well, this person's going to grieve more than that person. For an example, let's say that you have a couple sets of parents and they each have two children. And let's say that all four of those children go off to war. And in one family, both of the children die. And in the other family, one dies, but one comes home. Well, some people might look at that family and say, well, you're more blessed and lucky than they are because at least you had one come home. As if you shouldn't grieve as much as them because you only lost one and they lost two. You see what I'm saying? But they're going to feel the loss of that child they did lose just as deeply as the person who lost both. We can't compare loss. So the notions of the loss is a dangerous idea because it translates into replace the relationship, which is not possible. Well, your dog died. We'll get you a new dog. Well, every relationship, even with a pet, it's going to be a different relationship than what you had with the previous pet. And think about how much more that's true with people. And because we teach our children, and ultimately we ourselves grow up to believe that sad, painful, or negative feelings are not good, then we automatically to teach them to look for a different feeling or even a different relationship to replace the bad feeling. The thing is, we don't need to fix people or kids when they suffer a loss. They need to be heard. Feelings of loss are normal. They're natural. Children and adults need to feel bad when their hearts are broken. We don't try to fix it with a replacement. Here's another example. We're going back to John. Same John whose dog died. Now later in life, his bike got stolen. So what am I going to do? We're going to go get you a new bike. So they give him a new bike. So to some people say, man, it's a good thing your old bike got stolen because now you got a new one. I mean, this is way better. I mean, you know, oh, that was a, uh, you know, blessing in disguise. And yes, I agree to some extent that God can bring and make blessings out of bad things. I get that. But the error comes in saying that what you have now is so much better, so you shouldn't have any feelings of loss or anger or sadness or violation. Wouldn't you still feel violated that your bike got stolen? 
Still a little upset that someone out there took something that belonged to you? Now you think about that in other aspects and other arenas of people who have been violated. Oh, but you're married now. You have a great spouse, a great husband. You understand how that as a kid, if that type of mentality carries up into adulthood, well, I shouldn't still be grieving what happened back then because look how good I have it now. It doesn't negate what happened in the past. Telling others, even kids especially, not to feel bad and they're going to get a new one also makes them feel there must be something wrong with me for feeling this way because I should feel excited about the new thing. Here's another example. This goes back to Mariah again. She's so precious to help me out with this lesson. So Mariah, for a lot of years, had this little smoky mountain bear I don't know it's just a big old bear and it was under her bed for like a couple of years I don't think it ever came out and so going through things it ended up getting sold at a yard sale now it was not played with and it sat under her bed for two years so she didn't even know that it was gone right because I mean she'd forgotten it was under her bed for two years but she came across a picture of herself as a little girl with that bear oh man where is that bear? She went looking for it and couldn't find it. So she came to me. Where's that bear? Well, it got sold in the yard sale. What? Well, yeah, it had been collecting dust under your bed for two years. Of course, suddenly it was her favorite, and why did I sell it? You know, so giving her back an intellectual response, you know, to the upset moment, well, you know, and this was quite a few years ago. <laughs> I don't want her to misunderstand. It's not happened while she's 13. But just to clarify, so you're still good. <laughs> um, so during that time, though, when she was so upset, saying things like, you hadn't even played with it in two years. It was under your bed for two years. It never even got played with. Do you think that helped? Nope. A better response would have been, you know, you did have some good times with that bear. I bet you do miss it. And I'm sorry you're feeling bad about it today. And I'm really sorry that if it was so important to you that I sold it. I didn't mean to. I didn't know it was that important. So I'm sorry. And I, and I do get that you miss it. So the response is validating, understanding. You have feelings of sadness. I get it. Even maybe going to the finding common ground. And I could have said to her, you know, I understand because... When I grew up and first got married, I cleaned out a lot of my old dolls and stuffed animals, and I sold my Cabbage Patch dolls. And I wish I had never done that, because one of those was made for me by my mom, and I can't believe I ever got rid of it. And I was really sad. And it still, at times, bothers me. So I can relate. I can relate. And that's how you respond. Many times we respond to grief, which is emotional, with an intellectual idea. Things, it wasn't played with. You didn't need it. You outgrew it. You got a better job. Don't feel bad about the accident. Now you can get a different car. Intellectual deals with facts, right or wrong. But when it comes to grief, that shouldn't be our focus. Instead, you're responding and acknowledging the emotion. Even if a new pet, a new bike, a new relationship, a new job, etc., eventually comes, there may still be times of sadness and mourning for what was lost. Okay? If someone you know or even maybe all of us parents in here, you have a kid that seems like they're continuing to bring up an issue or a loss in their life over and over and over. It's almost always because their feelings have not been heard. Because maybe they've been given an intellectual response or reason instead of being heard. Okay? 
Think about teenagers. Teenagers who had their first boyfriend or girlfriend, and they experience a breakup. Well-meaning friends, parents, mentors, they may say, oh, don't feel bad. There's plenty of fish in the sea. Or in the church, we spiritualize it. Oh, it must not have been God's will. Don't feel bad. Must not have been the one for you. God has something better in store for your life. You know, don't feel bad, right? Replace it. Underline what we're really saying is, although we wouldn't admit it, move on, get over it, find someone better. Replace the loss. Replace the loss. I asked Paul if I could share, and he said, yeah. Um, back when we dated, of course, there was a time that he broke up with me. Yeah, he says, I always like to bring it up. And truthfully, I was devastated. I mean, I was grieving a loss big time, not just because of losing him, but truly I felt like God had spoke to me that this was the man I was going to marry. So I wasn't just grieving that, but I was grieving, am I really that in tune with God or did I totally miss here? Why did he break up with me if I'm supposed to marry him? So I'm just dealing with all kinds of emotions. Grief is conflicting emotions. And I kid you not that I cried myself to sleep every night for like five months. Well, my mom saw how distraught that I was. And she was just so trying to help cheer me up, trying to, very well-meaning intentions, doing what she thought she could do. And she bought me a card to cheer me up. And on the front, it said, God doesn't take something away without replacing it with something better. Well, it didn't cheer me up. I said, I wailed all the more. I said, I don't want something better. I want Paul. Well, thanks be to God, I got him back. So I heard from God and... 21 years later, here we are. So the issue that arises is that what is unfinished about each past relationship. So you have these breakups. You go through it, and then you're like, oh, that one didn't work out. And so you don't deal with the pain of why it didn't work out or what arguments you had or how you were hurt in the relationship. Even if you were the one that chose to do the breaking up and move on, you're still experiencing grief, right? So you move on to the next one. A lot of times people are rebounding right into the next one. You ever heard say, oh, you're moving on too soon. You're moving on too soon. Why are they saying that? Because they know this person has not gotten over all of the grief from the past relationship that didn't work out. So what happens is they take all this unresolved grief and all this baggage into the next one. And depending on how many relationships, into the next one. And by the time that person gets married, they may have a whole big stack of accumulation of unresolved grief from old relationships. But it's better to stop and take the time to mourn and grieve and process the feelings than to bury them by trying to replace the loss. I mean, you know, you've seen it in little cartoons or little sitcoms. I mean, the girl's distraught, and so all the girlfriends come over, and they eat the ice cream, and she cries and tells them how it's just so awful, and they hug her, and we understand, and we love you. I mean, that's really a good thing. That's really a good thing, right? So replacing the loss, another myth. Myth number three, grieve alone. We're going to go back to John again. Dog died when he was young. His bike got stolen when he was a young teenager. Now he's an older teenager, and his grandpa passes away. Don't feel bad, he thinks, no. And then he thinks, replace the loss, and then he really starts crying because he knows he's not getting a new grandpa this weekend. And I don't say that disrespectfully. But in times past when there was a loss, well, we're going to replace it. We're going to get you a new dog. We're going to get you a new bike. Well, what does he do now? He's not going to get a new grandpa, right? 
So in class the next day, John is visibly upset. The teacher says, John, why don't you just take some time and go up to the office? Take some time, collect yourself. So he sits up there, miserable and alone, until a family friend comes to pick him up. Upon arriving home, he sees his mom crying because that was her dad. And he heads for a beeline for her, only to be cut off by a family member who says, hey, John, let's just not disturb your mom right now. Let's just, let's just give her some time. She'll be okay in a bit. Let's just give her her space. So what does John do? He goes to his room to grieve alone. Following the death of his dog, the theft of his bicycle, and the death of his grandpa, John now believes three myths. Don't feel bad, replace the loss, and grieve alone. How many of you sitting here could say that you feel that whenever you have a moment in your life that you're going to cry, that you need to go off by yourself or in a room where no one sees you? I'm going to cry. Have to step away. Have to step away. I'm trying not to cry right now. I'm trying not to cry. Just give me my space. Step away because they feel society is taught we can't cry in front of people. They don't want to see it. We need to step away. How many parents have told their kids, even after disciplining them, if you're going to cry about it, you just need to go to your room? Now, I understand some kids get into these moments we all have of drama, and you know it's just fake and all that. Okay, we know our kids. But other times, they just got their butts banked, and okay, you're going to cry, go to your room. Well, you know, it hurt. So, yeah, I'm going to cry. All right? So we grow up with our lives, and we learn all these things. We start passing it to the next generation. Then we have a society of people with a lot of unresolved grief. How do you finish this phrase, everybody? Laugh and the whole world laughs with you. Cry and you cry alone. That's right. Cry, that's what this phrase is. Cry and you cry alone. And sad, sadly, we apply this misguided idea to ourselves, to others, and even to our children. Yet loss is inevitable. But was it, what doesn't have to be inevitable is to continue dealing with grief in the wrong way. Now, the author suggests that this particular myth of grieving alone may have an impact on the divorce rate in our society. Quote, how many of you, male or female, have not known how to deal with the emotions of a situation and slipped off to your room or to the garage or to ride around in the car or to clean up the kitchen, etc.? Are those actions the direct result of a lifelong lesson to grieve alone? Do these actions lead to a strengthening of the marriage or to alienation and ultimately to divorce? End quote. So why do people grieve alone? In simplest form, they're afraid of being judged or criticized for their feelings because many times they feel vulnerable. We're very vulnerable when we're dealing with grief and we're crying and we're sad and we're upset. We're vulnerable. Then we hear, don't feel bad. It's like we're somehow defective if we feel bad, you know. So it doesn't feel safe to feel bad in front of other people. So then everyone walks around with a mask on. People say, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. And they save all that negative emotion for when they're alone. And that's the only time they feel they can let it out. An example, maybe there's a spouse, and it could be husband or wife. Gender doesn't matter. But let's say the wife's had a horrible day, and the husband comes home. What's wrong? And they snarl back, nothing. I'm fine. But the question is, why doesn't the spouse who loves her husband or the husband who loves their wife, why don't they just tell them the truth? 
Well, the answer is, is that if they tell them how they feel, there's a very real possibility that the response is going to be, oh, don't feel bad. Tomorrow's another day. This one's over. Or something to that effect. So why do people grieve alone? Because we learn throughout our life that negative feelings aren't really acceptable or appropriate in private, much less public. So when babies are hurt, think about it. When a baby's hurt, what do they do? They cry, right? Because they need attention. They're hungry. They've dirtied their diaper. They're crying. They want something. And so far, they haven't got it. They're grieving. Come on now. <laughs> they need help. Thank you. I mean, perfect. Thank you. Object lesson. Thank you, Elena. Perfect. So that's what babies do, though. When they're upset, that's all they know how to do. Because when they cry, they know someone's going to hear them and come to them. When someone gets hurt, maybe they fall down or someone's being attacked, what do they do? Help! Help! Someone help! They're crying out because they need someone to come to them. Physically, I fell down. I need help. Help me. I'm stuck in a building that's on fire. Help me. Help me. I need help. But then someone that's just heartbroken with grief, they don't feel they have the freedom to say, help, I need help. Someone come help me grieve. That feeling of freedom isn't there. Having some alone time, it's not bad. But never being able to share our feelings is not healthy because it leaves a lot of grief unresolved. So the benefit as we begin to learn about these myths is that then we begin to change what we believe. And then we can utilize better skills for coping with grief. And not just for us, but passing it on to the next generation. That we can talk safely and accurately about things that are painful. So as we become aware of these things, we should also choose, don't be harsh with yourself if you're like, wow, I have done so many of those. I've said those things. It's just what society has perpetuated, okay? So don't feel bad. You didn't decide to do it. You just learned it, right? That's what we learned. Until I came into contact with this information, that's the way I dealt with things too. And they come from a multitude of sources. They can come from TV shows, films, institutions, literature, universities, our own families. And I understand that some of you may be feeling, sitting here feeling cheated, but many times these beliefs were even passed on subconsciously. Our parents weren't necessarily intending to do us harm. They just really were doing all they knew to do what they felt was best. So pause for a moment and realize that some of you may be thinking, wow, I really do have some unresolved grief from a past relationship maybe, a painful event. Maybe your parents divorced and you never really dealt with it. After we work our way through the myths, we're going to explore different stages of grief and how to recognize them, and then healthy ways to heal from loss, even if they're from a long time ago. I think the next three myths, and we'll see if we can get through them, we may not, will be pretty eye-opening for many of you now. Myth number four, this is a pretty big one. Be strong. Be strong. This is one that people have commonly expressed to those grieving. Be strong. Let's say you have a mom and she's going through a divorce. You got to be strong for your kids. You got to be strong for your kids. Maybe a man receives a cancer diagnosis. You got to be strong so you can fight this. Maybe you have an adult who has aging elderly parents who are sick. You have to be strong. Your parents need you. Here's an example given in the book even. This book was even written as a, in response. A woman reached out to one of these therapists because her husband had passed away, and she had a son and two daughters, and she was extremely worried about the response of her son, and that's kind of how this book got started. 
She had a son and two daughters. Well, the son begins to mimic his mother's actions and stays in his room to grieve alone. He don't interact with the family anymore, stays in his room, comes out maybe to eat, use the bathroom, goes back in his room. Both of the daughters, they're also affected by their dad's death. But the older daughter, she suddenly decides she's going to adopt the role of the family's caretaker. She sees her brother's silence. She sees her mom's attempt at being strong. And so she decides she's going to save everyone. So overnight, she transforms from being a child to an adult. She's even told, you have to grow up now and be an adult. You have to be strong. Your mom needs you. Think about how many times a son's been told, well, your dad's gone, so you got to be the man of the house now. You're the man of the house now. Be strong. The daughter learned she had to be strong for others. Sister McGee, I talked to her, and she gave me permission. She experienced this. Her dad did a lot of work. Her mom was sickly. She was the eldest. And you know what? She took on that role of caretaker. She And sometimes it just kind of cast upon them. Sometimes it's chosen, but... As a young person, she had to transition and didn't get to experience much of childhood because she was taking care of her siblings. Her mother was sick, caring for her mom, cooking, cleaning, helping do the house. And you know what? That kind of carried over into life even as her parents aged. She constantly defaulted back to that role of being the one to take care of her parents, being the one to give the information to the siblings. So she can understand what that feels like. The authors found that through their lifetime of practice, that one of the most common and difficult to overcome problems is the child who's cast into that role of taking care of everyone else. Because it's one of the most heart-wrenching examples of the loss of childhood. And they go on to say, while they can help people get their hearts back, these people can't get their childhood back. And many times, like I already talked about with Sister McGee, this person will default into that role time and time again in times of grief. They'll take on the role of taking care of everyone else, being strong, and yet ignoring their own need for healing. And what can result is, through the problems, is that that can build up unresolved grief because they never got to grieve properly. And many times it will eventually surface later in life in different ways. Sometimes it can surface physically through illness or disease, high blood pressure, different things. It can result in a breakdown. Or even when something small just kind of blows the top off all that suppressed emotion. One of the worst things we can say to someone who is grieving is that they should be strong. In other words, stuff down your grief and sadness and don't show your sorrow to those around you. I mean, because come on, wouldn't it be awful if you cried and they cried too? What's so bad about it? The mom with the deceased husband said this, I have to be strong for my son and daughters. That's what everyone tells me to do. So when I feel the tears coming, I go to my room. She grieves alone because she's supposed to be strong and not feel bad. So the kids are learning to grieve alone. And if they never see their mom cry, especially perhaps a young child might say, well, mom's not that sad over dad dying. Never see her cry. She's always strong. She's always doing things. But here's what real strength looks like, a whole lot different. Real strength is the natural demonstration of emotion. Saying and doing what is emotionally accurate. In other words, acting and saying things in such a way that identify with how you're truly feeling. That's being human, not just being strong. So then what happens as a result of that? Real strength then teaches people, even children, how to communicate feelings and not to bury them. And then it sustains energy for other tasks. Because isn't it exhausting 
to try to bury those feelings all the time and wear that mask and not crack and not break down and not cry and not tell how you're really feeling. So that's myth four, stay to be strong. Myth five, keep busy, keep busy. Oh, this is, this is a, a good one. The myth says the more you keep busy, the less you will feel the pain. It will keep your mind distracted and off the painful emotions you're experiencing. Well-meaning friends, clergy, family have advised people who are in the throes of grief to keep busy. That way they won't feel that deep sense of loss, that loneliness, that sadness, or whatever negative emotion is there. Keeping busy in addition to being exhausting creates another dangerous illusion. And that's this. If I throw myself into all this activity and I stay busy, if it's days, weeks, even months past, then the idea is I've done something constructive to deal with these unfinished emotions that are maybe connected to the death or the divorce or the other loss. When truthfully, it had nothing to do with emotion. It was just a lot of busy work, a lot of busyness. Nothing could be further from the truth because all that busyness served was to distract yourself from the pain caused by the loss. And then it ends up being buried deep without dealing with it. But here's the thing, guys. Emotions that are associated with grief are powerful, extremely. They don't fade away so easily. People can discuss losses. You can talk to someone who experienced a loss 20, 30, 40, even 50 years ago, and the pain in their voice, it's like it just happened yesterday, right? You've talked to the people and heard it. You can stay busy all day, but when you finally stop to lie down at night, many times you find that same pain in your heart that was there yesterday. When people receive bad news, many times their body goes into shock, or what some might describe as, I just feel numb. I can't feel or do anything. And really, this is a psychological response that's created by our body, and it kind of puts our body into a mode that protects the heart and the mind and the spirit to kind of initially absorb that shock of the loss. And that numbness where I can't feel anything, I can't do anything, I'm just kind of sitting here, it kind of serves a purpose because it pulls us out of the busyness of all these daily events. People may become preoccupied or distracted at work. Kids may even exhibit that same behavior at school. The numbness can be a good thing if it allows us to deal with the grief directly and not get distracted with being busy and a lot of activity. Work hard enough. You can power through this tough time. The problem is it's not the head that's broken, it's the heart. And it's not healed by hard work or staying busy. It requires an emotional response and having feelings validated or understood. Now, Sister Margaret's not here tonight, but we spoke on the phone. Back when I was taking this class, I got the opportunity to interview her and talk to her about a lot of loss that she experienced in life. And one of the things that Sister Margaret did to deal with loss was to stay busy. She told me, she said, she said when Bob died, she says he died on a Thursday and I planned his whole funeral that same day. She got busy. She said, when other people may stop and sit down and cry, not me, I get busy. That was her way of coping because that's what she's supposed to do. You've got to stay busy. It's going to distract you. It's going to take your mind off of it. A man named Cesaro stated that we must come to a place of understanding that, quote, we rush around doing when the Lord calls us to be. The Lord calls us to be, not to do. That's why he calls us human beings and not human doings. Myth six, 
Last one. Time heals all wounds. This myth has been shared far and wide and imposed on all of us at one time or another. However, like many false beliefs, it does have a basis in partial reality. Recovery from loss and completion of emotional pain, it can happen within a framework of time. But there's a huge difference between time healing a wound and a wound healing with time. Okay? Here's an example. Your car, you go out to it one morning to leave, and it has a flat tire. So you go back in the garage, and you grab a chair, and you pop it open, and you sit down, and you watch that tire. You wait for time to go by. Time ain't putting air back in your tire. In the same way, time in and of itself is not going to heal grief. Okay? When we experience a major loss or an event like death or divorce, there is a huge overload of emotions that comes to the point of many times feeling overwhelmed. And with time, some of that initial pain and shock will somewhat diminish. And some people think that the reduced pain, it must be caused because there's been a passage of time. And that is correct, but it's only in relation to that immediate pain from the loss. Because, you know, when you first get bad news, there's that shock, that, oh, my goodness, I can't believe it. Well, when the shock wears off a little bit, you think, oh, time's passing. It's helping to heal. But time in and of itself doesn't do that. If you combine this myth, time heals all wounds, with the last one, stay busy, many people think, well, if I stay busy long enough, eventually enough time will pass that I'll heal. In our society, we are prompted to recover from grief quickly. As I mentioned in the beginning of tonight's lesson, the average amount of time given for people to deal with overwhelming grief from the death of a spouse, a parent, a sibling, or a child is three days. Three days of bereavement. Three days for a broken heart caused by the death of a loved one. Yet several weeks for a broken bone. This policy only serves to reinforce that time coupled with staying busy should heal your grief. Get back to work. That'll help. Get back to a sense of normalcy. Get back into your routine. Spend some time. Stay busy. It'll help heal you. People are expected to be productive and for sure don't have a negative impact on those around you. I mean, they don't want to hear you crying and bringing the whole place down around you. So what do people do? They get used to responding, I'm fine, when people ask how they're doing, even if they're truthfully drowning in a sea of sorrow. Think about how this affects kids who are dealing with grief in their life and they're in the classroom. Because kids deal with a whole lot of loss, all different types. Their parents got divorced. They may have seen or suffered abuse verbally, physically, sexually. There's been death in their family. Maybe they've had to move, move to a different town, move to a different house. Maybe their parents lost a job and there's not enough money in the house. Maybe they bought, got a bad grade on a test or they're doing bad in, in, in a class. Maybe they've experienced bullying. I mean, the kids go through a lot of loss. Yet, as they act out their grief, sometimes and many times it's perceived as a discipline problem. Well, you know, they're, they're a disruption. They got behavioral issues. That's a lot of pressure for a kid dealing with grief. So as you see kids around you, we need to be sensitive to their needs and understand that they may have some underlying causes to their behavior that may stem from unresolved grief. There is no timeline for overcoming a loss. No timeline. There should not be anyone feeling like, oh, that's been such and such a number of years. I should be over this by now. Every loss is unique to the individual experiencing it. 
You should never and can never tell someone you should be over this by now. It simply isn't true, and you shouldn't tell yourself that either. Everyone heals and processes grief in various stages and degrees throughout their life. And people begin to tell themselves, you know, yeah, I should be over this by now. What's wrong with me? Why, why am I not feeling better? Hearts heal at different paces, just like bodies heal at different rates. Sad is not bad. Sad is just part of being a normal human. Grief takes different forms for different people, but we do have hope that we can find healing and recovery after loss. I'm going to share just a few scriptures here at the end. Psalms 30 and 5 tells us, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So there is a time that we're going to weep, but there is hope. Isaiah 53 and 3, that scripture describes Jesus as a man of sorrows and one who was acquainted with grief. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 tells us that we sorrow, but not as those without hope. I love that scripture because, yes, we're going to grieve. Yes, we're going to have sorrow, but thank God he is there to give us encouragement and strength. When we go through the process of grief recovery, we experience many conflicting emotions. It can include sadness, anger, bewilderment, regret. This doesn't mean that we don't trust God. It's okay to be a Christian, to love God, and still grieve. Matthew 23 and 37, Jesus was looking out over the city of Jerusalem. You can stand with me. Brother Alex, if you wouldn't mind to come to the music. Jesus was looking out over the city of Jerusalem, and he grieved at the state of his people and lamented and said in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killeth the prophets and stoneth them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, but ye would not. What's he doing? He's grieving. He's grieving the loss of that relationship with his people. We have several examples in the word of Jesus himself grieving losses. Lazarus, John the Baptist who was beheaded, the loss of the relationship with his people, even on the cross, he cried out and expressed his feelings. Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Expressing those feelings of grief. He didn't keep it stuffed in. He cried it out. They heard him. It was recorded in the word. And a servant is no greater than his master. We're all going to experience grief as well. We're all going to have loss happen to us. It's part of being a human. It's part of life here on earth. But we've got to overcome these myths that have been ingrained in us saying, oh, don't feel bad. Just replace the loss. Grieve alone. Be strong. Stay busy. Time will heal all wounds, all myths. Instead, we must learn how to process our grief in a healthy way. We will learn that we need to be heard, and we need validation for our emotions and feelings from another living human. And I'm going to talk more about that in the next lesson. And, of course, we need the help of our Savior, don't we? Thank God for him. And you know what? He promised that he would come to us. John 14 and 18, Jesus said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. He goes on in verse 26 to say, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, he shall teach you all things. Jesus saying, yep, I'm going away, but I'm coming back. I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I will come to you. What's that comforter? It's me in the form of the Holy Ghost. And then he says in verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. 
God can help us through grief recovery. I wouldn't want to do it without him. He, I thank God for the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost. I thank God to have him on board helping me when I go through struggles, when I go through loss, when I go through hard times. We can find peace. We can find healing, recovery from grief. Next week, we're going to talk about the different stages of grief that you may experience, not necessarily in any certain order, not necessarily in any certain length of time, but the different stages of grief that you will feel. And we're also going to talk about some healthy things that you can do to work through your grief and loss, to help you heal some things that you can actually do. So let's just take a moment, Brother Alex, if you'll sing a little something for us. Let's just take a moment to ask God to help us in our grief and the times and the things that when we've experienced loss, that he would help us to heal. God, can we just talk to him for a moment? Can you cry out to him? Pour out your heart to him tonight. Do you have something that's been bothering you? Do you have a loss that you've never truly expressed or healed? God, I pray that you would help us, God. I thank you, God, for your mercies that are new every morning. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.